Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Amos chapter 5, verses 18 to 24, and chapter 9, verse 8. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark, without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, today, as I said, is our three-year uh, birthday anniversary celebration day. It's been quite uh, quite a three years. Uh, there has been a lot that has been uh, happening over the last three years, and it's hard to, it seems like 2019, it feels like a million years ago. Just like a completely different world, completely different life. Uh, when we launched in October of 2019. Uh, but if you've been with us over the course of the last several weeks, uh, something that we have been doing is looking at our founding vision, mission, and values. Uh, because one of the things that we uh, are convicted by is that though the world has changed, uh, a lot can be said about how we currently live just in a different world than we did in 2019. Something that we also believe is that the things that God's called us to be and to do as a church, those things have not changed. And so as a result, we've been wanting to take a look at, uh, once again, uh, some of our DNA as a church. The things that have made us who we are. Uh, and this week, we come to our core value number four, which is our core value of mercy and justice. Let me read for you what our statement on mercy and justice uh, is. Uh, if you want more on these, you can go to our website for uh, all of our core values, our mission values, all the things that we've looked at uh, over the last several weeks. Uh, but core, core value number four, mercy and justice. That we are a church concerned with addressing both the tangible needs and struggles of our neighbors, which is mercy, and the reasons for those inequalities, which we believe to be justice. Uh, it's our belief that a church that rightly reflects the mercy and the justice of God will be a church best positioned to impact the lives of people and communities and even nations. Believing that faithful gospel witness will always include 
upholding mercy, decrying justice, and results in ensuring that all people, all image bearers, are treated with dignity and respect. That said, when we look at the book of Amos, though, the book of Amos is a prime example of what happens when God's people fail to be a people of mercy and justice. When God's people begin to lose sight of God's grace and fall into even perpetrating injustice. And what I want us to see today is the sobering warning that we find here in the book of Amos. But I also want, as we go through this sober warning, to also catch a vision for how it is that we could actually be faithful when it comes to this core value of our church. So that in mind, let's take a look at Amos 5 through the lens of three things, through the lens of the condemnation, the call, and the hope that we see here uh, in our passage. So first, the condemnation. So just a little bit of background. Uh, the book of Amos is actually one of the most striking books in all the Bible concerning injustice. Amos, he lived uh, after Israel and Judah had divided into two kingdoms, uh, and before Israel, which was the northern kingdom, had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Uh, during this time, in both Judah and Israel, however, there was great economic and political prosperity. Uh, the territories of each kingdom, they were growing, and there was plenty in the land. And by all accounts, it seemed as though things were going pretty well, and that they were blessed. But in the midst of that prosperity, Amos begins preaching against Israel. See, through the, the nation, though the nation was, was uh, prospering, and uh, there was also at the same time extravagance and corruption that was pervasive. Uh, during these years, though Israel prospered, a, a powerful and wealthy upper class emerged who exploited the poor and perverted justice by allowing huge disparities to exist. The state was far harsher against the poor than it was the rich. The poor were targeted as easy prey for profit. The, the powerful, affluent nations had allowed grave injustices to exist amongst them, all for the sake of pursuing what they thought was blessing, prosperity. And what's terrifying about the book of Amos, as you read through it, is how self-deceived uh, Israel was during this time. There was this arrogance of the people that blinded them to the indulgences and the idolatry that existed, all while believing that God was in some way pleased with them at the same time. Prosperity and wealth and success, it should be noted, are not always and necessarily signs of God's favor and blessing. Rather, worldly success could very be very well be the result of God giving an entire people over to their depravities and idolatries, ultimately leading to the condemnation that we see in this passage. Look at uh, verse 18. This is what the Lord says. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? Let me pause there for a second. The day of the Lord which is a major theme of the prophets, was a day uh, to which Israel looked ahead, where God would bless his people, giving all that he promised. But it was also a day of judgment for the wicked nations, uh, where God would uh, save his people, but judge those who are wicked. 
But what's interesting about that day that is being referenced is God here is saying, why are you looking forward to that day? And the reason God asks this rhetorical question is because their injustices was actually placing them squarely in the path of his judgment. For those who perpetrated injustice, uh, they were to be found in Israel. And as a result, this day of the Lord was not to be one of rejoicing. It was actually to be a, a, a day of darkness, not light, according to verse 20. They are looking ahead, desiring to experience God's faithful promises to them, while at the same time ignoring and reveling in the wickedness amongst them that was actually putting them in the path of God's judgment. But they, however, go even further than that. Look at verse 21 through 23. In these passages there, we are told that there were feasts and there was offerings and that there was singing. I mean, what are they doing here? They are worshiping God all while ignoring the injustices that they are perpetuating. And all throughout those verses, God reveals his disgust over such hypocrisy. You know, for example, consider that throughout the, this book, God and Amos speak at different times. Uh, and when God speaks, those statements are always prefaced with, thus says the Lord. But in verses 18 through 20, these verses are uh, Amos speaking. But then in verse 21, God begins to speak without that preface. Uh, I heard one preacher note that it's almost as though God is so disgusted that he doesn't even announce himself. He just butts in and interrupts their worship, and he says, I despise your feasts. I reject your offerings. Get away, with, get away from me with the noise of your songs. The summary of God's anger in chapter 5 is not only that they are an unjust people, but also that they mock him by saying that they worship him all while serving themselves. Their affluence, their desire for political and economic gain, their refusal to acknowledge their injustices, their belief that God somehow blessed them elicits this reaction from God. And throughout scripture, few things provoke God's anger like injustice against the poor and the needy. You know, just as an example, in Ezekiel 16, one of the main reasons why God brought judgments against Sodom and Gomorrah, we see, was that they did not help the poor and the needy. In Deuteronomy 25, God commands Israel to treat all people justly. For the Lord, your God, detests anyone who does not, anyone who deals dishonestly, it tells us. In Proverbs 6 and Proverbs 17, it speaks of God's hatred of injustice. In Matthew 25, a passage that we've looked at over the course of this series, Jesus says that those who do not care for the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, those who are in prison are not actually his people. In Matthew 21, the one time when we see Jesus get aggressively angry, what does he do? Do you remember? He flips tables. And the reason why he flips those tables is because the money changers in the temple we're making money off the poor. Now, this is a, a, a little bit of a side note, but we can't get around the fact that God does get angry and that there is a hatred that God possesses. And when I say that, for some, that immediately causes people to tune out because for many, 
They can't imagine a God of anger, a God that hates, but rather they want to cling to a God of love. And the desire to cling to a God of love is a good desire. But consider two things about this idea. First, when we think about anger and hatred, uh, we often see anger and hatred through the lens of our sinful understanding of anger and hatred, which is often broken and selfish and lacks control. But this is not the kind of anger and hatred that we read about in the Bible that God possesses. Not all anger is wrong. Not all hatred is evil. To hate that which is unjust or to be angry when the weak or the powerless are oppressed is the only proper response when we see such things taking place. And a God who does not get angry is also a God who cannot love. In fact, when it comes to injustice, a God who does not hate injustice is a God who ultimately proves himself uncaring and unloving. We want a God who, in the end, refuses to allow injustice to stand. We want a God who sees the marginalized and the poor and the powerless oppressed. We want him to hate such things. We don't want a God who's apathetic to the plight of the most vulnerable. Most vulnerable. Rather, we want a God vehemently opposed to injustice. So before we proceed any further, we need to understand that God is not ambiguous on this issue. God takes injustice very seriously, and therefore, as a result, his church cannot be ambiguous on this issue. Mercy and justice are one of the biggest priorities for us because they're one of the biggest priorities of God. And here in Amos 5, we see that the people are under this condemnation because they have allowed injustice to occur and they have mocked God by worshiping him while allowing that injustice to continue. But not only do we see the condemnation here, we also see a call to the people. Because that ultimately begs the question, what does this then mean for the church? Right? What does it mean to actually be a people that go out and live in such a way that we are full of mercy and full of justice? Because I realize that for many of us, we probably don't think of ourselves as oppressors of the poor. We likely don't think of ourselves as unjust, especially when we're talking about the kinds of things that maybe were happening uh, during this time in the book of Amos, and fair enough. I think we'd be hard-pressed to find people who read the story of, of Israel and the things that were taking place at the time and identify with those people. But though we don't immediately identify with them, I do want to challenge us to consider a couple of things. Something that we, we've said before when we were looking at the injustices of Israel is that we are actually far more like them than we are not like them. And if we're honest and consistent, we can see over and over again that the same things they fell into could be the same things that we fall into today. So I wanna consider two things on that point. The first thing is that there, we need to at least acknowledge that there are people who are literally like those found in the book of Amos. There are people who intentionally prey on the weak and the vulnerable and the poor. There are those who enrich themselves by taking advantage of people, and this happens all throughout society. I mean, this happens in the church, this happens in the private sector, this happens in government. We see it everywhere. You know, in the church, 
There are, for sure, certain ministries who are gravely unjust, and they seek to enrich themselves by manipulating people. You see it all the time. In the private sector, some, uh, so often, sometimes there's aspects of our healthcare system and our, our banking and lending practices. There are, there are bad actors in so many industries who are perfectly fine with preying on the vulnerable, with no compassion, no empathy. The only thing they care about is that growing bottom line. You know, in government, for example, and in our legal system, just consider our cultural obsession with incarceration, which allows for private prisons to literally profit off our high rates of incarceration. Incarceration that's got the highest rates of any nation in the world. People are making money off of that very fact. Granted, we are not Israel, but these kinds of grave injustices happen every single day, all around us. And we best believe that when God sees such injustice, he's angered by it. When people are literally profiting in exorbitant ways by preying on the weak and the vulnerable. But the second thing I want to say is I do think that even though we still, even after I say that, we might not identify with that kind of extreme version I do think that too often we easily let ourselves off the hook with regards to our own participation in injustice. I know I do. Right? I, I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we're all very willing to give ourselves a lot of grace in a lot of different areas. And the reason I think that is, uh, because, is the case is because of verse 24. This verse calls us to a very particular kind of justice. And I want to take a look at this. Let me uh, reread this for you. It's a very famous verse that you've probably heard before. But verse uh, 24 says, let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. There are two important assumptions in this verse that I think, if we're again honest and open, are very confronting to us. The first is that justice is necessary and presumed. And the second is that it's meant to be sure, certain, and never failing. Let me explain to you what I mean by that first. This is why this, this passage was one of the favorite uh, passages, of course, of the civil rights activist Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, MLK uses this passage, uh, when, and when he does, he could not have used it in a more appropriate kind of way. Uh, as he was prophetically calling out a church that assumed themselves to be good, uh, good with God, yet fundamentally rejected the justice of God, this passage was very appropriate. His use of this passage, unfortunately, perfectly fits this context. There were churches that worshipped God, yet their worship was a stench before God as a result of their injustices, their prejudices, and even the spiritualizing of their bigotry. And so what can we take then from this verse? Well, this verse gives an amazing insight into what it means to honor God in this area of righteousness and justice. And we've considered this before, but I don't think we can just get past understanding what those two words, justice and righteousness, mean. Because it's central to who we are as a church and the things that we believe 
are central to our core value of mercy and justice. Maybe you've uh, heard this before, but the Hebrew word for justice is the Hebrew word, uh, word mishpat, and the Hebrew word for righteousness is zedekah. And I heard one uh, commentator note that this, uh, this biblical river of justice being described has essentially two banks on either side of it. One bank is mishpat, the other bank is zedekah. And these two ideas are what actually keeps that river flowing. And what's also interesting is that these two words are very often paired together. We see in Genesis 18 and Hosea 2 and Jeremiah 22 that we always have these two words, righteousness and justice, mishpat and zedekah. Let me explain to you a little bit of the difference because, again, I think it becomes very confronting to us. To understand the difference, uh, rabbi and Jewish scholar Jonathan Sachs, he explains it this way. That the two words, zedekah and mishpat, signify two different forms of justice. Mishpat means retributive justice, or the rule of law. Zedekah, by contrast, refers to those who have uh, more than they need, who must share some of that surplus with those who have less. In other words, mishpat speaks to the systems and the structures and the laws that keep the oppressed poor and the weak. And Zedekah speaks about how we treat one another and the way that we attempt to care for those who are in need around us. And in my experience, we speak of, when we speak of Mishpat, we are speaking about the systems and structures. And when thinking about Zedekah, we often think about mercy ministry. Uh, and those are two very different things. Thinking about the systems and the structures of our culture is very different than caring for the needs of people that are immediately in front of us. Uh, several years ago, uh, we had uh, a justice conference that we uh, were part of and had hosted, helped host. Um, <clears throat> and at that conference, there was one of the speakers, his name was Gabriel Serguero, and he spoke about these two different aspects of justice. And in his talk, he expressed concern about the church and the reality that there was plenty of Zedekah that existed. In that we are really great at usually doing things like feeding the poor, clothing the naked, acts of kindness, acts of mercy. Right? We, we are usually pretty good and we, we understand that we need to treat one another with respect on an interpersonal level. Especially with those who may uh, be in various ways different than ourselves. And that would fit into the category of Zedekah, the mercy kind of ministry. But then he said that we have a very real mishpat deficit in the church. That we struggle to engage with systems and structures that create the problems of injustice. And in that talk, he references Archbishop Khmer, who said this, and it stuck with me. He said that when I give food to the poor, Zedekah, they call me a saint. But I, when I ask why they are poor, which is a mishpat question, they call me a communist. Meaning we are generally good at treating people well and respectfully on an individual basis. But we tend to not be good at addressing why a person is in the situation that they're in. And why questions can be dangerous questions Especially when the answer to those questions involve us, involve our actions, our habits, our politics, our cultural assumptions. 
it gets very uncomfortable to ask the question, why? For example, why do we have an increase in homelessness in our community, especially amongst those who are struggling with mental health issues? Why, and this is very real, why was the development of Hudson Yards, an affluent area of our city, partially funded by leveraging the poverty of East Harlem through a gerrymandered map that siphoned money from communities like East Harlem to put it into the hands of developers. Please Google that, it very much happened. Why are people of color less likely to have access to quality healthcare, education, job prospects, but more likely to be incarcerated for crimes statistically committed at the same rates of non-people of color? Why? Why? In the South Bronx and many other communities, are there more pregnancies that are aborted than go to term? Why, with unprecedented wealth, are children in our city going hungry? Why, with unprecedented health and healthcare technologies that exceed anything the world has ever known, are there still people who don't have access to quality healthcare? Those are mishpot kinds of questions. And the reason why we don't like asking those questions is because they're complicated to understand. They're complicated to navigate. They're not simple. None of those, those questions that I just answered could possibly have one single factor contributing to them. They're complicated, and yet, they're nonetheless justice questions. Mishpat, right, those why kinds of questions, right? That Mishpat is speaking to those why kinds of questions that word is used over 200 times in the Old Testament. It's a central theme of justice. And I draw this out because I want us to see that mercy, Zedekah ministry, addressing the tangible needs and the struggles of our neighbors is a good and right thing, but it's only one aspect of being a just people. Because the other bank in the river of justice forces us to ask the questions, why? Mishpat, and our call for those of us who would be followers of Jesus, Christians, part of the church, we have a robust call to care for people in need, experiencing suffering, and stricken by sickness, but we also are called to be a people that see the systems at work around us, that prey on the vulnerable, and allow the most vulnerable to suffer as a result of the systems and structures that exist, and for us to push against those and say, no, we will not allow that to happen. And when Christians do so, when we are able to actually have a voice that speaks against these kinds of issues, we have an impact that can reverberate beyond just the issues of the immediate need. So with that said, let me get a little practical. What does that, what does that mean? For some of you here, this might actually mean being in particular seats of power where you have direct influence over things that are happening. Meaning God might call some of you, and maybe has called some of you, to government or to law or other places of influence in order for you to be part, even if just a small part, of seeing systems and structures changed to be more justice-oriented. I mean, this was the, 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 the civil rights movement uh, in part had uh, great successes by 
changing laws. But most of us will not be in those seats of power. We can make changes by living to the best of our ability in countercultural ways because we're not going to have the opportunities to speak into the systems and structures the same way. For some of us, getting involved with or supporting organizations or entities that are working on these issues is the way that we will actually be able to support system-wide structural changes. And this is actually, even though there was a lot of, of course, success with the civil rights movement in changing laws, the lasting effect, the power of the civil rights movement was the reality that the movement, its real strength was because people all over the countries, Christians in particular, were living in ways that challenged the injustices that were around them. Christians living in countercultural ways by committing to Zedekah and Mishpat will end up making lasting change. We have seen it happen. And that is the call for all of us, even those who might not end up being in those seats of power. And here's our problem. Injustice, I recognize, existed before the book of Amos. It existed all throughout the time of Israel. It happens all throughout New Testament Christianity and exists in the church and outside of the church. It exists in our neighborhood. And if we are honest, it is happening right here even within our walls. But the reason that we are called to be a per people of mercy and justice is not because we're ever going to actually be able to rid the world of injustice. I think one of the unfortunate uh, realities for those who desire to be a people of justice out in the world is there ends up being a heaviness and a burden because there's this, this assumption that we're going to be able to rid the world of, of poverty and injustice. And please just know, we're not going to be able to do that. In fact, none of that will actually fully go away until one day Jesus returns and crushes the head of all injustice that exists. And so we do look to that day with great hope that one day that day will come. But until that day, this is something we have talked about over and over and over again, that we as a church are called to be a people that reflect that coming day to testify to the coming day when Jesus will return and crush the head of all injustice, even though we won't be able to bring that full justice now. We can certainly give glimpses of it by being a people who proclaim it in both word and deed. And one of the things that we have that many don't is a hope that extends beyond the actual successes of the work that we do. If we are going to be a people of mercy and justice, we need to be able to cling to that hope because if we don't, the burden will crush us. And so that's what I finally want to look at, the hope that we have in the midst of this work of pursuing mercy and justice. Uh, at the very end of Amos, the book does not end with condemnation, but the book actually ends with promises. God promises that he will destroy the wicked and sinful cities and in verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 8, he also promises that he would not destroy the descendants of Jacob. And he goes on to say that he will restore his people, that he was going to bring them out of exile, and that the nation would bear his name, he says in chapter 9, verse 2. In the midst of judgment, there's this restoration, an ultimate hope that's being presented to them. And what is that ultimate hope? What is the importance of God not destroying the descendants of Jacob? What does it mean for the nation to bear his name? 
Well, we know something on this side of redemptive history that Israel didn't know. We actually know the substance of those promises that were given. And the substance of those promises is the ultimate descendant of Jacob. God promises not to destroy that line, but to sustain that line. And the one who would come through that line, of course, would be Jesus, our ultimate hope. I mean, do you know why we, well, why they are not destroyed because of their injustices, why we are not destroyed because of our injustices or our apathy toward injustices? It's because of Jesus. He is the substance of the hope that we see here. Because Jesus, he takes the full cup of God's wrath on the injustice. He takes it upon himself in our place. The very wrath we deserve, that anger, that hatred against injustice. Jesus steps in and takes all of that upon himself. The cross of Christ, it's there where we see justice done. But justice not to us as we deserved. Jesus on the cross, he accomplishes true justice by presenting to the world God's true nature and character in regards to injustice. The cross takes very seriously injustice. But also we see God's great love for us because while we deserved that wrath, Jesus steps in and takes it upon himself. And also, as a result, going back to the promises of Amos, it is also his name that is made known among the nations. In Matthew 12, uh, Matthew, he quotes uh, Isaiah's prophecy from Isaiah 42. Speaking of Jesus, he says this, that a bruised reed will not break, and a smoldering wick will not be snuffed out, Till he, was, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. I mean, do you hear that passage? What's being described there? Jesus brings justice through to victory. And what is that victory? Well, it is the way God will ultimately deal with the injustices perpetuated by his people at the time of Amos and the injustices that have occurred ever since. Jesus takes the condemnation that is rightly ours, that was rightly Israel's, upon himself. Jesus came and was amongst us experiencing the brutality and injustices of our oppressions and our injustices. But even as he did that, he lived a life that was perfectly righteous, unlike ours. And one of the things that I find so beautiful about the work of Jesus is the ways in which he experienced the full weight and sorrows of this broken world so that we could have a savior who understands. Uh, Marsha Owens, she's a, an activist and a community organizer. She put it this way, and I want to close with this thought. To consider the full gravity of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. She says this. She says, Jesus spent a week in Jerusalem working for us, doing what we can't achieving our salvation. He spent three years in Galilee working with us, calling us to follow him and to work alongside him. But before he ever got into working with and working for, he spent 30 years in Nazareth being with us, setting aside his plans and strategies and experiencing in his own body 
not just the exile and oppression of the children of Israel living under the Romans, but also the joy and the sorrow of family and communal life. In other words, we have a Savior who plunged himself into the brokenness of this world, the injustices of this world, where he felt it on his very body. And he did that so that as he then goes to the cross, we have a Savior who understands not only the brokenness of this world, but also takes upon himself the consequences of that brokenness on the cross, on our behalf. Jesus experienced that exile and that oppression on the cross for us, that we might be liberated from the bonds of decay of this world. So I bring all this to a close in just saying this, that we are a people of mercy and justice because God calls us to be, because God hates injustice, because God is angered by injustice. But we also are people that can work for mercy and justice because we have a savior who has gone before us, who has accomplished a work for us, and now as a result empowers us to proclaim his kingdom, one that is without such things until the day that he returns to bring a full restoration of all things. And so we can pursue this work, but we can do it with hope, knowing that we do not go into this work alone, but rather Jesus is with us. And so let's have hope as we embody this core value of being a people of mercy and justice in the world. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you, that you are a God of justice. Lord, we do not want it any other way. We want you to look upon injustice of this world, to look upon those who prey on the vulnerable and the weak, and we want you to have anger against it because we know that it is not the way that it should be. But Lord, because we know that you're a loving God and that you're a merciful God, we recognize that in that love and in that mercy, you rescue us from the condemnation that would inevitably come, the wrath that inevitably would come against the unjust. And you rescue us by sending your son, the one who on the cross takes upon himself the consequences of our sin, of our injustice. And in doing that, you give us great hope to know that now as you send us out into the world to be a people of mercy and justice, we do not go alone, but we are empowered by the Spirit as we make known in word and deed the glories of your kingdom that, that are to come one day when we experience it in its fullness when Jesus returns. And so give us hope until that day. Empower us until that day as a church and as individuals to be a per people of mercy and justice in this world. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.